Welcome to DevQuest, a podcast from the folks behind Lando about the wonderful and perilous journey of the modern web developer. Do you use an open source tool and wonder how you could give back? Maybe you feel worried that your coding skills aren't up to the challenge of making a contribution, or you just don't know where to start. On today's episode, I talk with Amy June Heinlein, aka Volkswagen Chick, everywhere on the internet. Amy June recently received the Aaron Winborn Award for her work in the Drupal community, organizing code sprints, helping first-time contributors, encouraging businesses to contribute code, and maybe also for advocating against hoppy beer. But her conversion from self-professed Luddite to open-source leader didn't happen overnight. Here are a few things to keep an ear out for in our conversation. How the altruism of a hospice nurse translated to open-source, the power of community, Finding your place in technology, even if you're not a coder. What Volkswagen maintenance and web development have in common. Making open source contributions easy, even for non-coders. The importance of accessibility. And maybe a little bit about the wonderful world of geocaching. Let's go talk to Amy June. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm here today with Amy June Heinlein. She is the community ambassador and QA engineer at Canopy Studios and also the 2021 Aaron Winboard Award winner and a prolific organizer in the open source community uh, and community events. I said that wrong. Open source community events was the, the word I was trying to get out all at once. Welcome, Amy June, to the podcast. Thank you, Dustin. I am so glad that you included my honorific of my award because um, I'm really Very proud important. of that. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, can you, for anybody who's outside of the Drupal community, can you give kind of like uh, a summary of what the Aaron Winborn Award is all about? Sure. Um, so Aaron Winborn is a community member who um, passed away in the last few years in the Drupal community. And the award is basically given to someone who the community elects as going over and beyond um, community. You know, I don't know exactly how to say it because I just won the award. I didn't have to like write the demo, but (laughs) you have to write it. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, but um, I do a lot in the community and um, I do a lot of mentoring. I do a lot of outreach. I, 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 um, community is very important to me. And some of our community members nominated me to, to win the award this year. So that was really nice. And it feels good because yeah. um, we, all, we all like recognition. And I think when you work in the community in a volunteer space, getting that recognition is super help, helpful to not feel burnt out or used, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I think, you know, that kind of what you said kind of matches what I know about the Aaron Winboard Award. Um, so uh, I'm glad that I wasn't thinking it meant something else. But, but yeah, and that's definitely, you know, when you talk to people in the Drupal community about you, whenever, you know, or whenever, you know, sort of when, uh, any interactions that we've had as, you know, I, I always see you kind of being involved in camps and, and, you know, different events kind of, you know, pulling everything together, you know, getting people to submit, you know, talks and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, that's a totally, uh, you know, I think the award is well-deserved and really matches up with, you know, just the limited amount of interaction we've had, you know, since the, the, I think the first time you had to message me to pester me about something that I forgot to do for one of the events we were supposed to speak at. 
It was it was bad camp DevOps summit to be specific, but yes. <laughs> yes. See, see, you you remember. I I remember that I had to do something there, but uh, w- w- without gentle reminding, I don't think uh, you know. I don't think my session would have happened very well. <laughs> Um, a lot of what we talk about uh, on DevQuest, uh, the past guests we've had, we've talked a bit about, um, you know, it's all about sort of the journey through this career path that that we're all on. And it kind of takes a lot of forms for everyone. But the one thing that's kind of common amongst everybody is we all kind of have a beginning. Like when we got into this world of working with websites and all that kind of stuff. Um, so you went through similar to myself and a couple other people in the community, sort of a career transition where the, you know, working on web web stuff, wasn't sort of the first thing you did, you know, kind of once, you know, once you were born into this world, it wasn't, you know, career number one. Um, so can you talk a little bit about sort of like your um, introduction to sort of working with Drupal and web technologies and, and kind of how that came about? We won't talk about my previous lifetimes yet then, but um, as far as Drupal goes, <laughs> you can technology- start there too, if you would like. <laughs> No, that's okay. Um, so I'm actually a Luddite by heart. You know, I didn't have a smartphone until maybe after I started with Drupal. And the only reason I got a smartphone was so I could geocache and not have to have my GPS all the time. Um, so technology isn't something that comes firsthand to me. You know, it's like I still have a dial radio, you know, I might have an iPod, but do I know how to lo- load it? No, I don't. I was coming to 20 years of nursing and just wanting something different in my life because in nursing, very much like giving back to open source, there's a lot of altruism and there's a lot of giving back and there's not a whole lot that you get in return. And because of the nature of hospice nursing, I didn't, I mean, I worked with clients, patients, but really I did a lot of um, imminent death. So my client, my patients were more just being, um, making sure that they were comfortable and that sort of thing. And the real people who I were dealing with was the families and the families can be really abusive and hard. And after 20 years of having, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of families that are caring and loving and love all the nurses, but there are some that we can't do anything right. And it was just coming to this point in my career where I just couldn't do it anymore. You know what I mean? Like coming home Mm -hmm. crying and not being able to do it anymore. Um, And I was helping out um, with a website for uh, a record label, burningtoken.com. And I was doing some content entry, like entering bands and doing this. And um, the person who was showing it to me showed me how kind of it was a CMS. And I was like, I don't know what that means. He's like, well, we built this thing that built a website that now you're entering content in. And I was like, oh, hey, can you add this field? Can you do this? Can you do that for me? And they were like, well, why don't we just show you how to do that? And so that was sort of the introduction was like learning how to do content entry and wanting more than the CMS had to offer. And then, you know, through circumstances, you know, finding out that I wanted to do a career switch, um, this was my wife at the time. Um, my wife said, Hey, you know, I listened to this podcast from this guy, Mike Canello, and he does this Drupal Academy. Why don't you try this out? And so that was sort of what got me into it was the little bit of burnout on the nursing side, experimenting with a little bit of tech, my wife already being in tech and knowing that it's good money and good people. And then this little bit of a push to just try this boot camp. 
Oh, cool. Yeah. So I, I didn't realize you already knew people sort of in the space. That's, I think those types of things in those early, um, you know, sort of, you know, try it before you buy it kind of experience of, uh, I I think is really helpful for a lot of people making the transition. And I know for me, I, long before I ever started doing the whole, you know, like actually doing this for a job, I remember downloading like copies of WordPress on, on a laptop I had and being like, Oh, look, like I can make a website and this is cool. So that definitely, that resonates with me of the, like, there's the, there's the initial hurdle of like, you think that this is for people, you know, with some sort of superpower skills who are like, you know, crazy programmers, like, you know, the, the, in, in the, the social, what is the name of the movie about Facebook? It's like social, social project or something like that. Like I think you have to be young Mark Zuckerberg in order, <laughs> in order to get into doing anything with the web. And so you were, you were working with this, um, this record label, which sounds like the coolest type of Drupal site to be, I'm assuming it was Drupal anyway, to, to be working yeah, it, on. So that sounds fun. Right. And it was, but like I said, it came from like, you know, her being like, I know you're smart enough to do this yourself. So why don't I just show you how to do it? And then it was like, but I don't know Git, and I don't know all these things. And I didn't even know the words for those things back then. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I was working on like a live site. Yeah, definitely. Back then I had no idea, you know what I mean? And she would go in there and clean it up afterwards for me, but it was fun (laughs) enough, you know? And actually, you know, she was working for a a web shop um, in the San Francisco Bay area. And I went to a bad camp and um or a stanford web camp and this is before like this is just me like entering bands at this point not even knowing what drupal was but she took me to a camp and mm-hmm. it was kind of cool you know i went there i didn't know what they were talking about but i sat in on sessions and everyone was so welcoming everyone was so warm like oh you know, this is before I even thought about even wanting to do the Drupal thing, right? You know, but people were just so nice and buying yeah. me beer afterward and having, you know, fry nachos and things like that. And so that's another thing that kind of drew me in was that first initial community, you know, the San Francisco Drupal community. You know, I know not everyone has good experiences the first time they come into the community, but me, like, having someone by my side and introducing me to folks, you know, at that first web camp, I met, um, uh, Mark Casillas, who I work with every day now. And I met Adam Bergstein, who I help out, like, you know, that's that my first exposure to Drupal. So it's kind of this extraordinary thing, you know, and, and then when the idea of boot camp started and like, Hey, there's these things called Drupal cons and bigger camps. It's like, well, I want to do that. Right. I want to, I want to be part of that you know, that, that part of something bigger too, that open, like learning what open source was, was kind of a cool thing. It's sort of, you know, there's this part of nursing that feels good, like that altruistic part. Like the reason I like hospice nursing is because it feels really good to know when I'm with someone and they're passing away, they choose to be with me while they're passing away. It gives you that little warm and fuzzy feeling, you know? And I was, worried I wouldn't have those warm and fuzzies if I moved to tech because we think of tech as this really sterile and dry environment but it's not like that at all you know and that's why I think the we'll talk about the contribution path I took later but that's why that natural progression for me to go into Drupal and then go into contributions gives me all those warm and fuzzies that I had nursing a little bit different warm and fuzzies but that same sort of 
like glow that you get when you know that you've given back to something better than yourself. Yeah. And I had on my list kind of asking you like, you know, how did the, um, you know, sort of, uh, how did you naturally get into sort of wanting to deal with contribution and sort of welcoming, you know, uh, I, I remember, you know, reading some of your bios, you know, that was, you know, kind of front and center and you just kind of, without me even having to ask, you just kind of highlighted there. It's real obvious how that kind of, that good experience, you just want to turn around and sort of give that to other people. Right. So right. that's very cool. So it sounds like, you know, you got this, you know, you got this kind of shot in the arm of community and, you know, sort of like, this is a place I could spend my time. And then you, at some point you made the decision that like, okay, like I'm going to really pursue this. You know, what kind of paths did you take there of like, what was next for you after that part? Before I did, you know, the content entry for Burning Token, um, while I was still a nurse, I was getting my master's degree and I had gotten my first bachelor's degree ages and ages and ages ago. So a lot of the way you get degrees now changed. And so I had to take all these really weird classes that had nothing to do with nursing to get my master's degree. And one of them was like public speaking. And the other one was like some sort of computer science stuff. And so I took some basic HTML and CSS classes back then. So I had this like understanding of like what it took to make a basic web page, you know, and then, you know, getting into Drupal, you know, uh, we decided Drupal Easy was the best thing for me. And I met with Mike Anello and he was a super nice guy. And so I took some classes. And of course, like I came in from a different perspective as most people, because I didn't know, like, like, I don't know how to open my terminal at this point. You know, I don't know how, like all those things that we take for granted now, I didn't know any of that my first class at Drupal Easy, you know? And so he sort of helped me out with that and the class helped, you know, like how do you open your terminal? What is get? And that first couple of weeks of that class, he really drives in all these like really basic points that we don't think about now as developers, you know, what's composer, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Um, and I have to be honest, like with people, like even during those first couple of classes. And then as I like finished taking this, this series of Drupal classes and site building, like I can site build. Um, I knew that coding wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say that again. I knew right away that coding was not for me, but I still wanted to be in Drupal. And so I made it very clear when Mike was placing me because he offers this placement program. Um, he tries to place people like after they finish his, 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 I think it's like three month class, tries to find you an internship, mm -hmm. a paid internship with people. Um, because the, the coding part just, it just didn't, it, it just didn't come naturally, you know? So sure. um, he found me a place with Calamuna, which is a local to me agency. It's just up the road in Oakland, you know? And so I was able to go in and um, go into the office twice a week. And I had a couple of really good mentors, but I was learning code because that's the traditional path, right? You know, so I get this interview with John Olette and Katie Poole and they're like, okay, you're going to be our support engineer and you're going to like do this. And for me, I was like, what do you mean I'm going to be helping fixing broken websites when I don't know what I'm doing? <laughs> this seems really counterintuitive, right? You know, wait, should yeah. I be building something? Because how do I know how to fix something if I don't know what I'm doing? But like John had these like, this way of teaching and this classing and the support system that, you know, he had me like work on projects and that's the glory of Kalamuna is they do a lot of um, 
pro bono and stuff for nonprofits and things like that. And so yeah. they would talk to their clients and say, hey, we have this beginner, this learner, this intern working on your project. So it might take a little bit longer than normal for it to work, or it might take a couple iterations, you know, where we give it to you and you give it back and then they fix it, you know, which is kind of a neat program to have. So I had some flexibility yeah. with my learning curve. You know, they had me build like this mega menu. And I can't tell you like, how many times I would cry because I couldn't figure something out like a preprocessor or all of those words, you know, and it was about halfway through my internship with, with John Ouellette that I just like sat down and I just cried. And I said, I have no idea what I'm doing. And he said, I know. Like, what do you mean? You know, he goes, I was just waiting for you to tell me that you didn't know what you were doing because I've known all along, <laughs> you know? Um, Sounds like John. Because here's the thing is like, he's this like stern kind of person on the outside, but he's like super cool on the inside. You know what I mean? But I didn't know that then. And so I was like, I was afraid to say I didn't know what I was doing. I was afraid to admit that I needed help. I was, I was afraid to ask the same questions again, because I knew I had already asked the questions. It just didn't set with me, you know? And so Kalamuna was this wonderful opportunity to kind of explore that. And then, like I said, halfway through realizing that code isn't for me. And so we switched tactics, right? And we had me more on site building, you know, and helping with UCSF and helping with like feature requests or updating and things like that. But getting that foundation of Drupal, learning how to make mistakes and how to fix them and how to Google them and how to do Stack Exchange or whatever search engine you use, you know? So that was the great part of that internship was finding out that it's okay to ask questions, finding out that it's okay that you don't know how to do everything and finding out that it's okay that you don't want to code. <laughs> it feels like that those types of positions, like there's not enough of them sort of in, in our industry. And it, it feels, I got started kind of 2012, 20, 2013, I guess, actually more. And I fortunately had a very similar experience where I found a company that was willing to take me on with very, like I had, pretty much no experience whatsoever. And site building in Drupal was kind of that, like, you mean I don't have to write any of this crazy PHP that I don't understand and I can get a lot done? I eventually transitioned into to coding just because I was fortunate that it kind of it, it clicks for me. But, it you know, it was great that, like, someone would take a chance, you know, to give me, you know, the the time of day, so to speak, to, to get started and, and just do stuff. And Drupal is such a great piece of software for giving an in for people who like can get a crazy ton done without ever writing a line of code. I think that exposure to the code has helped me on my path. You know, some people wouldn't need that exposure mm -hmm. to code because I like help with different things, like understanding what all of the theming aspects were. Cause this was like on the crux of Drupal six had just been antiquated and Drupal seven was, was on bar on board and then Drupal 8 was just starting. So I had this unique experience of learning Drupal 6, 7 and 8 all at the same time too, which was it's kind of unique so I didn't have to like have that huge learning curve if I'd only learned Drupal 7, but um definitely just even knowing some of those words helps me with what I do now, you know, so that back then I was like why am I even doing this internship? But I know now that that you don't know why when you start what's going to what's going to be important later on, you know, but um, one part of the journey I want to mention, too, is with Kalamuna. Um, this was back in the Calabox days. And Mike and Alec, 
um, were still part of Calamuna when I, you know, he, their leads over at Tandem now um, at Landum and Lando. Um, but they Both. did the Calabox <laughs> thing. Yeah. Um, and so I learned this thing called the local environment. And it's been the bane of my existence ever since, right? Because like I, I'm one of these people that cannot, I don't care. I don't want a local environment. And so this has actually shaped my career in Drupal because a lot of people will often say that I try to lower the barriers to entry to Drupal for people. And one of those barriers I try mm -hmm. to eliminate is that need for local development because it's hard. When Calabox finally got like antiquated and Lando came in, the documentation improved a lot and I learned how to use it. And what was nice is the team uh, allowed me the space to like load it up and figure it out and improve the documentation for beginners and that kind of thing. Um, I'm not saying that people, that local environments are important, but having that struggle and it's not just Lando specific. I would have had the same struggles with MAMP or the same struggles with Doxel or DDEV or anything like that. But yep. all of those little pieces about that path being so hard, I'm very cognizant of. So that's when I when I when I talk about lowering the barriers to entry, I think about all of those pain points I had as a non-technical user using Drupal. And I take that with me now wherever I go. You know, like you don't need the local environment. You know, you can do it just in Get, or you can, you know, use uh, 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 Simply Test Me or something like that. You know, or I tell people you don't need a local environment because, you know, you can look at the code, whatever it is. You know, but I think having that exposure and having that help earlier on with 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 Calibox and Lando helped me realize how important like local development is. So that's a path that I've been down, and then how. Sometimes it's not important too. You know, there's that juxtaposition yeah. of importance versus not importance, depending on what role you you ultimately seek. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, and definitely, I think it. Um, I I run into this a lot working with clients who they don't. There's people oftentimes work you know who they're not a web developer by trade. That's not what they do, but they want to be involved in sort of making the website. And there's a lot of you know like you're you're especially me being you know working so closely with lando local development ending up being a big part of like what i've gotten into and kind of interest wise there's a, a lot of like well if we just spun it up on your machine you could do whatever you want and it would you know you'd have a free sandbox to do whatever you want with and realizing that that's not a reality for a lot of people that they're just there's overhead and barriers to to getting that done um has helped me to try to you know like okay well like you, let's use if we can, our cloud provider to maybe spin up an extra copy of the site so that you can play around, you can do something and not worry about breaking it and, you know, get comfortable. You can make some changes, tell me what they are, you know, or just tell me when you're done, I'll download the database and then we'll, you know, we'll, we'll put them on the production site. So that's definitely, it's, it's funny because being so directly involved in the local dev space, you forget how there's tons of work you can do without even booting up an environment. And just to interject a little bit, working with Mike and Alec and John and Jeff at the time, you know, um, after I made the transition out of Kalamuna and I was doing more work with Drupal contributions, because of having that relationship with them early on, I was allowed a relationship to be perfectly honest about, I want to, 
I, this is what I need for my job. I need a, a local environment to spin up a Drupal site to do testing, which is out of that normal wheelhouse of, I don't need a database. I don't need all that other crud, right? I just need a test site. And so because of knowing people and explaining my predicament, you know, they allowed me to help improve documentation specifically just for contributing to Drupal. You know, this, and we broke it down to like, no fluff, no, no, how did I kill the rhino to get to this recipe for the beginner? <laughs> this is what you enter in the command line three things later and you have a Drupal site, you know? So that's been pretty nice about the journey too, is me being able to admit to folks, I don't care how it works. No offense. Just just that it works. <laughs> just give me the documentation and the steps it takes, you know, so that that we can yeah. do that, you know. So so that's pretty important to lower in the barrier, too, is because you're going to lose a bunch of people with all that extra stuff. You know, I just want what do I run in my command line? <laughs> just the facts, ma'am, as, as, as my dad used to say. So you've mentioned sort of your your work with Drupal contributions, and um, that's, I think, that that's a big part of I've, you know people know you in the Drupal community for that for that reason. And another thing that I've seen you mention a few times is like contribution without code. Um, so in in that kind of vein of like being able to contribute, what are some of the ways that people can contribute to sort of the open source community that that you've seen that don't have to do with like opening up a code editor and you know sending patches to people? Sure. So there's actually two aspects of the non-code approach. There's the non-code and the code base, and then there's working away from mm -hmm. the code base. And when I first started with like public speaking and giving back to Drupal, I didn't know what I wanted to do yet. And I said, I want to talk because I like I'm a nurse, I'm a teacher, I'm a parent. I like teaching people. What can I do in the Drupal space? Like I want to talk, but what can I talk about? And so the folks that I worked with at the time said, well, you know how to write a patch. Why don't you give a presentation on how to write a patch? And this is where it all started was I went to L.A. camp and I submitted a talk saying, this is how you write a patch and give back to Drupal. And I just went through an issue, created an issue and made a patch. Now, backing up a little bit, you know, that self-described non-coder developer, what can you do in the code base that isn't code? Well, documentation like readmes or UI fixes. So my first getting involved in Drupal and non-code was still in the code base, but doing something like, I think my first core patch was views UI. There was something in the UI that was misspelled or the grammar was wrong. So I just found that in the code base. It was code, but it's just a sentence. Changed that sentence, wrote a patch and gave it back. And then because I was evaluating modules all the time for the other work I was doing for this company, I really struggled with the documentation in the readmes. And so my boss said, well, that's not code. That's markdown, you know, or a text document. You can give back in forms of documentation. So that was another non-code in the code base that I could do. Yeah. And then after a while of like showing people and going doing first time contributor workshops at the local and regional level, I got to thinking about all the people who we didn't see at these workshops. We weren't seeing our human resource directors. We weren't say, seeing people who were in sales. We weren't seeing our marketing people. So there was a whole niche of people 
who weren't coming to Drupal events because they had nothing to do. And I thought, well, there's plenty to do. And what happened is I went to a WordCamp US and I went to their contribution day and they had rows and rows and rows of tables, but only one table for code. Everything else was non-code contributions. There was a marketing team. There was a polygots team. There was, you know, um, a diversity team. They had all of these tables for giving back to WordPress. It was just like a total switch where, where if you go into a contribution day previously for Drupal, you would have one table for other things and everything else was code. So it got me to thinking is I want more of my friends from the office to come to these contrib days. What can we do for these people? What, what can we, it feels really good to give back to Drupal. And I wanted everyone to have that really good feeling. I wanted everyone to feel like they could come to contrib day and you meet so many different people outside of sessions because at sessions you have to be quiet and then you know you go to the after party and they're you know they're dark or they're loud where contrib day it's just this weird like just a position but no one's in a hurry to do anything so it's a really good place for networking so it got me to thinking about all of these non-code things like community events um podcasts you know just the general networking that we do you know and it just sort of opens up and then to think about like the non-code things people do to put on all of these things because like even at DrupalCon we had a keynote well somebody wrote that slide deck it wasn't a developer you know someone created a slide deck someone created an image someone designed this beautiful piece of art for us but they weren't getting attributions for that you know and it's like they probably spent more time writing that slide deck than I did with my first core patch so I get to thinking about those things and like like the equity involved with contributions. And so that's why I'm like, like lately sort of made the switch of more of the community-based projects because networking and getting to know people and really making sure that our, that our spaces are more inclusive, not just like, you know, excluded communities, but, but diverse in like what role they have and what, you know, skill level, you know, all of the different kinds of diversity that come with Drupal that we don't always think about, you know, because inclusivity means everybody. Yeah. And that's a, so before we, uh, we, you know, hopped on this call, you actually reached out to the, the members, you know, sort of the members at Tandem and, you know, and Lando and asked like, you know, could we create a, a issue queue for the podcast? And when you first said it, I was like, an issue queue for the podcast. Like I can imagine like a, like a, Hey, I have this idea about the podcast. So it felt like really foreign at first to think about like, well, like, what am I going to commit to the the repository? Like what, what patch am I going to fix? And it's like, you know, this narrow view of like, that's what you spent. You know, what I spend most of my day doing is you know, that and meetings, but you know, so that, that, that was, I, it at first felt very foreign, you know, very like odd. And then it's cool to, to see sort of that, branching out to recognize everything else you know, that happens around making any kind of I mean, open source software is just sort of one kind of community and it's mm-hmm. one kind of thing that we're doing in the world. And it, you know, it tends to be a thing that has really good positive impact, but uh, I like, I like how you're kind of like changing the mind space of how to think about who's involved in all this work and kind of making sure that everyone's seen kind of for like what they're doing. Especially from like the, the meetup and camp perspective, you know, like I can't like 
some folks had issue cues before, but, you know, I do a lot of the lead organizing now for, for several camps. And that's something that's always real important to me because without our camps and our meetups, we're not bringing new people into Drupal. And so that might even be more important than code sometimes, you know, is making sure that we... Mm-hmm. We're teaching people and we're bringing in those those new ideas and those fresh ideas. Right. And like I said, you know, just the. I don't want to say that code's not important, but there's just so much more beyond the code that makes us a community, you know, so so that's the idea. And people struggle with with work life balance in Drupal. And one of the things that we can do is we can incentivize our contributions and make it worth our employer's time. You know, so if we give attributions to people who are working on the code base, why aren't we giving attributions to people who are working on the networking part, like that put on Doug's that talk and give trainings? That way, those agencies get a little bit of an attribution and incentives and then, you know, having that incentive builds employee retention, um, helps with talent recruitment. So there's like all of these like really little things, but put together, make it a big, having those attributions is a big deal, you know, especially when it comes to like the idea of, is it worth it for us? You know, and as more and more companies and, you know, Dries more and more has been talking about takers and makers, you know, making sure that what he talks about translates into our ecosystem, you know, because I want to, I want to work for a company that community is important, you know? And so, yeah, you know, just making sure that the companies get that stuff, you know, and not everyone, not everyone's working on code. Like I said, I can't even stress that enough. There's so many people doing so many different things in Drupal. What, what's dawning on me, you know, sort of having this conversation is it's more than just Drupal too, that like at Tandem, like we're involved, we do a lot of Drupal. So that's like, that's sort of, that's where we came from, right? That's like our sort of our origin in tech is working in Drupal. That's what all of us did kind of starting. But now we, and we talked about this a little bit earlier that you're kind of getting more involved in the WordPress community. And for us, we do a little bit of WordPress. We do a good amount of Laravel. And since um, Lando is written in Node.js, I mean, there's a little bit of that too. And it's funny to think about how the different communities feel and how the how they may or may not value or or at least show value for you know those other contributions and how Drupal I got you know is and is is really different you know sort of for me in in that way compared to Laravel there's lots of people in the Laravel community who aren't developers but I don't know I don't I'm trying to put together in my head kind of how it works around like there's people who speak at conferences who don't write any code, but like it is sort of the people who are looked up to tend to be just developers lots of times and how like, you know, we can, we can do something about that. We can change that. There's a lot more going on. I'm having a lot of, you know, a lot of processing the, the, the ideas of how we could expand that going through my mind while we're talking about it. Well, for full transparency, um, this morning I did a webinar with the Drupal association where I actually, uh, did a demo on how to create a community project. And they had asked me about this webinar at the same time you had asked me to do the podcast. And so it was like 
sort of a marriage of ideas. It was like, oh, what 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 new project am I going to create that I don't already have? And it's like, oh, well, there's the, the dev quest. And so <laughs> I actually used it and then created it online in front of everyone this morning, you know, so people could see how to create a project and how to make an issue and how to make a comment and how to do all those little things, you know. Um, I just thought it would be fun because it was just so timely, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's it's a good way to get two things done at the same time. A good example. And it's like, well, I was going to do this anyway. So, <laughs> but that's cool. That's I'll have to try to find the recording to see if I can, I can see it getting created in real time. So another topic that, um, that I know you're passionate about and something that you're kind of known for is working with accessibility too. And uh, you've mentioned, you know, kind of being, uh, involved as a hospice nurse. And when we were, you know, planning the session, you talked about how sort of that and, you know, in some ways gives you kind of a inside feel on, you know, sort of what it's like to live, you know, for some people, you, you know, people who've dealt with accessibility issues. So can you talk a little bit about sort of like that influence and, you know, how, how you've brought that into the work you do as well? Sure. That actually didn't come in at first because I didn't have a connection. What it was, was I went to a meetup a couple years in and someone talked about accessibility on websites and it clicked on me or clicked for me. Like you can, people, agencies can make accessible websites, but they don't. (laughs) Yeah. And it was like, well, why, why would you not make an accessible website? And that's really where it stemmed from. And because like being a hospice nurse by trade and having family and friends who like either like have Alzheimer's or uh, quadriplegia, things like that, you know, you I witnessed firsthand how hard it was for people to do simple things, like even check their email. Like if you have to have someone read your email to you, you lose all privacy. Mm-hmm. And privacy is such an important aspect of being a human. You know, even if you feel like you don't need it, not having it is is just wrong, you know. Um, and then also, like, people not having exposure to the same information, you know, because I could read a website, but my blind friend didn't know that there were pictures on the website. It was just such a dawning thing for me. And so I made every effort to, like, meet some accessibility people, you know, meet leaders in the community. You know, I had the unique experience of, you know, planning a meetup where I had Mike Gifford come into San Francisco and talk about accessibility, just the baselines. And then I was working at an agency and I convinced them that it would be super important to have, you know, a front end developer who's accessibility. And so I kind of got into it just because I, I just have this advocacy. I knew nothing about how to get it done. You know, this was just, straight up advocacy. And then, you know, like anything, the more you listen, the more you learn, the more you expose yourself to it, you kind of get into it. And then when I started working with Canopy, um, they really gave me the space to run with it, you know, because this was a concept that they knew of. It's been a priority, but they just didn't have the resources or materials, you know, and so I was able to learn more and, you know, I wanted to expand my public speaking skills and talk about more things than just contributions. And so accessibility made, because I was such an advocate, it made sense. And so yeah, we all know when we write presentations, we learn, you know, and so I started learning 
more about accessibility just because I wanted to start talking about it. And then I started doing audits and started doing other things like that. But it really came down to that. Just, I want everyone to be successful. I want everyone to have that even playing field, you know? And like I said, there was that moment of realizing that it doesn't have to be an extra. It can just be the thing, you know, but there's like this, this block for people that, oh, accessible websites are going to be ugly or whatever myth they have. It just doesn't make sense to me because I want to include everybody in everything I do. I've always been like that. You know, I've always been the one that wants to play ball with everybody. Oh, that person doesn't have hands. What can they do instead? They can be the whistleblower. They can be the referee. You know, we all find places for people, but we just have to lower that barrier. We have to make sure that those, those blocks aren't there. You know, it's not about like making a different website or in the contribution space, you know, different tools for different users. It's about eliminating all of those things that prevent people from being able to contribute. Yeah. yeah, it's like the, I, I think I've seen that classic uh, cartoon of sort of equity versus equality. And, you know, it's just, you know, making it possible for people to be involved in these things. Um, and it definitely, I know that for me as a developer, I, for I think a lot of it came from a level of ignorance of not knowing like what I needed to do you know, to, to, to make websites accessible. And actually, uh, we worked, Donna worked with us, Donna Bungard, who, uh, I believe is, is with Canopy now worked with us. And until like, I worked for years in sort of web development before getting to know Donna and knowing someone who like legit cared about this and would review our sites and be like, Hey, like we need to improve the accessibility. I had never used a screen reader before that point. Mm -hmm. And so she was like, Hey, it's, it's like installed on your Mac. Just go ahead and fire it up and, and, you know, like block the, the, the monitor and see if you can use the website and sort of see what, you know, what happens. Um, And then, so like, yeah. And it felt like it, the things that you had to do to just improve accessibility, they aren't that hard, but there, I think for me, it was just, it was another layer of things you had to, had to know how to do. And now I know how to do them better. I'm not perfect at it, but mm-hmm. so it's, I wonder, you know, like what we can do about teaching web developers earlier on, like to, to do things the right way, you know, like to, to not have to have that, do it wrong, then do it right later right. <laughs> you know, well, kind that, of experience. That's kind of like contributions, like where the more people you include in your base, like, like your wireframes can be accessible from the start if your designer knows about accessibility. So it really comes down to that, like having Mm -hmm. the team to play off your strengths. Like Donna's on our team at Canopy and I do some audits, but I'm not 100% best on it, you know? So we have a developer that comes in and does audits too. And Donna does the screen reading, you know, having like a team of people that are good at different things, just like anything else we do, like that really helps with accessibility because too, the way I use a website is going to be different than the way you use a website because I'm hard of hearing and I have glasses and I'm in the sun, all of those things. So the, but it really, the point is like making sure your designers have it. And then you have a design that they present the stakeholder and they're like, Oh, that's nice. It's already accessible. That prevents you having to right. fix it later. <laughs> yes. Uh, what do you really think about those color decisions you made designer? Exactly. Yeah, and, that, and, and that, that oftentimes are like, Oh, like, well, we don't have to, you know, be a hundred percent or whatever. It's like, well, let's, 
how about we find some colors that'll work together that, you know, that, and I've, I've also dealt with even people who don't have um, any kind of physical impairment themselves. It's until you've experienced working with some really cheap computer hardware, or like you just mentioned, like working out in the sun, like you don't, you don't even realize how much the design or usability degrades, even for the, just someone has a, a monitor that has this horrible contrast. And, you know, so things become hard to read even from that. Or, you know, so. it could be socioeconomic too, right? Like you can't afford, yeah. you know, an iPhone. So you're still on like your little Blackberry with the little screen like this, you know, or, or yep. I live rurally. And so my internet sucks. And so I have, images turned off in my browser, you know, things like that. So just like yeah. the more you learn, the more you're like, oh, okay, you know. Um, but yeah, it comes down to just wanting everyone to be able to to do it on their own, right? And have that privacy, I think, because privacy is huge for me, you know. Um, yeah, I hadn't thought about that till you mentioned the connection you well, know, between you, okay, those, those so two as things. A, as a hospice nurse, reading really awkward emails to patients from their families just wasn't what I wanted to do. Do you know what I mean? Like, or reading yeah. old love letters. It's just like, nah, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I feel like the second one might be a little bit easier than the first, but you know, maybe you get into character, but maybe that would, you know, that would, that would ruin it. I don't know. But, but yeah, that's definitely like privacy is such a big thing, you know, nowadays for people, especially Apple just kind of, you know, announced at WWDC, they're talking about, uh, they're going to turn off, uh, you know, like they're going to try to block pixel trackers by default. And that's, it's kind of been a, re- a rising concern. What, an earlier episode we talked to, um, Chris works with Locker and privacy is, you know, is part of the stuff he's into. So it's like, it's a big thing now, but I'd never really connected it to, you know, accessibility concerns that if you're, if you're making a website more accessible, you're also improving, you know, potentially a user reader, whatever's privacy at the same time. That's, that's like even more reason, you know, that, that this is an important thing for, for us to be paying attention to. And I love how, you know, this ties to, there's a thread that runs through all the different things that you've talked about, about, you know, making things accessible for people is very related to finding places in the community. It's, it's almost like a different kind of accessibility for people where it's just, you know, making sure people can get plugged in, that they can give the world what they've got, you know, so to speak. And I think that's really, really wonderful. So that's, that's the majority of the questions that I had lined up about sort of what you do, you know, at work and, you know, kind of with, with all, all that kind of stuff. We have some bonus round questions for some other things if we, if we want to talk about them. I hear you're into geocaching. Yes. Yeah. My wife has been interested in getting into geocaching and I like, I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. We could go around and find stuff, you know, and it would give us an excuse to get outside and like go find stuff around the area. So how did you get, get interested in that? Okay. So this was when I was still in nursing. I was working with um, quadriplegics and I had a client who loved to go into the national forests and just loved the outside. And he actually introduced me to geocaching and I thought it was like the dorkiest thing ever. I'm like, okay, we're going to like go into the woods and find a Tupperware. Woohoo, you know? But it was so much more than that because like there's puzzles and there's games and just because it tells you where it is doesn't mean you're going to find it because there's sometimes like Mm -hmm. three, like 
like less than an inch big. Sometimes they're in ammo cans. You know, sometimes they're not at the posted coordinates and you have to figure out a puzzle to get to them. Oh, it's kind of addictive to you. Like they'll like you can be in downtown San Francisco underneath the stop sign and there'll be tons of people flowing by you and there'll be a geocache right there and no one will see it. And only you'll know about it because you have your GPS on or your phone. And it might be like a magnet behind the stop sign or something like that, or like something hanging from like a, like a paperclip in a post, you know, cause just cause you know where it is, doesn't mean you know where it is. Right. And then you get into the woods and you have like ammo cans, but you don't know, like it could be like a contraption where you find something and you pull a rope down or it's like a flagpole or it's in a tree stump. And, um, and I travel a lot. So it's kind of a neat game that you can take traveling. And I used to homeschool my kids. And so it was a way that I could, they learned map skills and they learned stealth and they learned like about uh, satellites and stuff like that. So it was a really interesting geocache project when they were little too, you know, a little homeschool project. But, oh, I, yeah, I, I travel a lot for work. And that was, that's one of the things I always like to do is make sure I find a geocache because you get this dorky little badge on your profile. I found one in Colorado. <laughs> Found one in Florida. So there's like a there's like a directory to, to you know where you could like a social interaction aspect to it. Yeah, there's a geocaching.com, and you go to the website and you log in and you create a profile and you get a map with these little dots on it and you go to those dots and you find it and well actually like so so here's like oh you can't see it folks at home I'm holding up a bug um they have these (laughs) I can see it at least (laughs) so there's a there's something there it's like a tangible box and you open it and there's a log that you fill out physically and then you fill out a log online, you know, so it's a game and you get numbers and you get points. And um, I have a travel bug. So I picked it up in a geocache and I took it with me and I'm going to Colorado next week. So I'm taking this bug and placing it in another cache in Colorado, mm. you know, and some of these bugs have stories about where they want to go to and where they want to, you know, who who their owners are and things like that. Um, and then they have um, meetups. Well, not so much in the last year, but you like people will have a physical meetup where you go and you talk to other geocachers and yeah, it's a community all within itself. It's really neat. That, like I knew some of the details, like I knew kind of like the general idea of what you had to do, but I was always curious about specifically like, how is this organized? Like, where do you go to like start geocaching? Because I, I understand the concept of like, all right, you get some coordinates and like you go pick something up and then like you drop something. And the, I was always curious, like how it was how it was organized, how it all came together. But you have to be stealthy because there's this concept of muggles, you know, non-geocaching people, you know. So, yes, there's a geocache oh, yeah? in San Francisco, but you just don't want to take it down and open it because someone else is going to see what you're doing and be like, what the hell is that person doing? And they might steal the geocache or not put it back right, you know. I've also had where I've there's like guardrail geocaches where I pulled over and I, you know, sitting in my car and I'm waiting for cars to pass and I'll go find the geocache and I'll open it up and be signing it. And I've had like a policeman stop. And I was going to say. <laughs> because he thought I was rolling a joint because I unraveled the log and was rolling it back up to put in the geocache. So, so there's all sorts of different things to think about, think about during it, but you know, it, it, it adds to the adventure and fun. And then like, Sometimes you'll be someplace and the, you'll know the geocacher is, 
is there, but there'll be people mulling around and you're waiting and you're waiting and waiting. And finally, I'll just be like, hey, you want to learn about this game I'm playing? It's called geocaching. And then I'll take the geocache down and I'll teach someone because I don't want to wait for them to leave. I'm just too impatient, you know, so... (laughs) There's like all sorts of different dynamics. I like that. They're like, all right, like I ain't got all day to wait around. So you're <laughs> exactly. gonna, you're joining the club because because it's going to be more convenient for me at the moment. That's that's great. Have you ha- have you had a lot of good experiences doing that? Or have some people given you like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about? <laughs> no, most people will be like, oh, OK, thanks. And most most people have interest, but you get a few where you're like, oh, OK, thanks for letting me know. And it's mostly because I don't want them to think <laughs> yeah. I'm like planting a bomb or you know what I mean? Like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I can imagine that that goes well with the uh, the the officer as well, like. Well, maybe the next time they see someone uh, doing something a little suspicious looking, they'll be like, hey, are you geocaching or is uh, something else going on here? Exactly. <laughs> That's cool. So now now I feel like I know enough about it that my wife was getting started, like thinking of doing it with the kids. Now, I, you know, it sounds like something I might want to get involved with them with them doing. It was like because the whole idea of like, oh, like we could go to like the uh, uh park or state forest or something i was like i want more excuses to do that you know so that's definitely sounds like a a good reason to get us out there and have something to do and depending on the age of your kids it might get them to go an extra mile down the trail too because they're like they might really like geocaching and you'll be like oh well there's another one coming up and it'll get your adventure a little bit oh that's a great idea it's a good excuse to visit someplace new too. Like, I don't know, like you kind of fall into yeah. the rut of like going to the same parks all the time or only going down we one do, trail because yes. you know about it, but you're like, wait a minute, that trail has two geocaches. I'm going to go down that trail today. So it leads me to to different places and different towns and different places I wouldn't have thought of normally. Oh, that's great. That's that, especially the, we have some kids who like to hike for a good long distance and we have some kids who do not. And, and so any little bit of encouragement they need to get to the next uh, next mile marker would, would be helpful. All right. So one, one of your other, uh, you know, sort of uh, hobbies or, you know, things that you're known for, you are, you are Volkswagen chick on many of these social media platforms. So you're really into Volkswagens, huh? Yes, I am. And there's a long story and a short story involved with that. Um uh, so I'm the youngest of seven kids. And by the time I came around, I did not get a good car. I got a Volkswagen because it was 500 bucks. And that's what my parents decided that they could spend on me. So I had a Volkswagen growing up. I had a cruddy Volkswagen growing up. So I would drive my little putter and it would stop at a stoplight, literally stop. And I'd have to go out, <laughs> rearrange some things, put a vacuum hose back on and get back in my car and hope that it started. (laughs) And then I would go to the machine shop and I'd be like, Hey, I need this part done. I need this thing. And then eventually the guys at the machine shop and I can say guys, cause they were all guys at that point. were like, who's doing your work for you? I'm like me. I have this book called the Volkswagen guide for the complete idiot, you know? So I've just been doing it on my own. And they offered me a job at the machine shop because they were like, well, your interests, you're doing it right. You don't have ego. This isn't very politically correct right now, but you're a girl. So you don't have yeah. like, this issue of 
being in control or you're going to be really easy to teach is what basically what it came down to. So I started working at a machine shop because they just asked me to. And I thought that was really cool. Um, and I've had a Volkswagen all my life. Um, and Volkswagen has a community of its own too. You know, we talk, I'm, you can tell I'm really big on communities. Volkswagen shows are super rad. Like you go there and people have all their like 1950s Volkswagens all the way up to the stupid cars in the 2000 Volkswagens, you know? So the community. I have one of those stupid ones. (laughs) I do too, but you know what I mean? But, but the community is there. But what's funny is like later in life, like this is how old I am. I have a Hotmail account. I had to pick a name for a Hotmail mm. account. I just did Volkswagen chick. And every time something comes up where I needed an avatar, I just default to that because I don't like you. Well, we work in something that where you have to name fields. It's hard to name things. And so I've just been consistent. Oh, yes. The Volkswagen chick. <laughs> but it stems for like first, like just my deep love for Volkswagens because they are one of the most accessible cars that you can think of as far as like, if you don't mm-hmm. like, I'm 16 years old and I don't know what to do, but I have this book that says what to do and my car is fixed. Do you know what I mean? Like that German engineering, is just, you can't beat. Like there's a reason why 1957 Volkswagen bugs are still on the road. It's because they were built right. You know, you just have to know how to take care of them. Right. The, they're, I think a combination of built right and simple so like I I don't have I've never really owned a lot of older stuff but I just last year during the pandemic I bought for the same $500 a like a 1974 Honda CB360 which is you know this it has a very similar engine I'm sure to what's like in an old Volkswagen it's simple air cooled you know <laughs> and there's you know just straight up cylinders and and carburetors and you know, all very simple mechanical things that are inexpensive. And uh, I wouldn't say easy to work on, especially if you're dealing with carburetors, but, but something that, uh, you know, I, I like you were talking about sort of that accessibility, right? To, you know, it's it's something that anyone could kind of, well, maybe not anyone, but a lot of people could get involved with and understand. Right. And, and the thing about Volkswagens is like, because they're made in a couple different places, like their parts are so interchangeable. Like you can put a bug engine in a bus, you know, and, and it's just this, or in a Carmen Ghia. Do you know what I mean? It was just so, you know, you can put the transmission of a bug in a bus, you know, all of those things. And then as they started to get made in Brazil and they, and they're just super cool. Like, you know, when, you can just hear it coming down the road. There's this whole culture of waving at them, you know, and it's just, yeah, I just, there's no other car like a book. Well, it depends. Like some like Corvair people are like, there's no other car like a Corvair, but um, yeah, Volkswagen's like, you know, (laughs) it's a Volkswagen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. And you, you mentioned uh, that, you know, the 57 Beetle and the 66 Transporter are your favorites. Okay. So they are my favorites by kind of by elimination because we all know those Herbie movies, right? Herbie rides again. Well, that's yeah. a 1963 Volkswagen. There is no reason on no way in the world I'm ever going to own a 1963 Volkswagen because do you know how many of those they crashed in those movies? And everyone wanted a Quite a lot, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, so the parts for a 1963 are limited. So I look at it that way. 
And then bugs have this transition through time with like the size of their windows and the size of the car and what they look like in the inside and the type of the engine. So I really like like 1956 and 1955 bugs. They have these really small windshields that are split in half in the back. But for safety reasons, it's not good, right? And then you get into like your 19... 61s and 62s where the, the the window in the back is huge and that's okay but the 1957 and the 1958 bugs have these little oval windows that make them sort of distinguishable which is cool they don't have that split yeah. window so you can see more you know and they've got this like really flat windshield in the front that makes it look like a gangster and it's like really super squat and then in the inside you've got you know you've got a a, a a 36 horsepower engine, you know, and it's just perfect because you can't ever get a speeding ticket. It runs like a champ, you know, <laughs> yes. all of those kinds of things, you know. And then as far as like the 1967 bus goes, I like that one because 67 and 68 is when they switched body styles and they don't have split windshields in the front anymore. And they just like started having like sliding doors and things like that. And because of how they're manufactured, the 66 is very interchangeable. So there's a lot of parts for those. And it still had the, mm. the you could you could still, it came with the 36 horse, but you could put the 40 horse in there, you know, and get that like a 1200 CC engine. Woo. So, so I like <laughs> it because you can upgrade it enough to make it fast and fun. And there's a few different versions of it, you know, like they still have like lots of window choices because for people who are more into Volkswagens, you know, most Volkswagens have 11 windows going around, but there's some Volkswagens that have 21 windows or 18 windows or 13 windows. And the 66 has a lot of different versions that you can choose from a lot of different, you know, really cool colors that year. I'm more of a stickler for like, um, keeping things original too, you know? So, yeah, but I'm more of a beetle person than a transporter. The reason I have a had a bus was because I had a family and trying to stick two car seats in the back of a Volkswagen bug. And just the safety alone is kind of weird that I graduated yeah. into it, into, into the bus when I had kids. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've, we, we graduated into uh, minivans, but none of them near as cool. I'm, I'm, I'm very sure. <laughs> we eventually went into the, the Jetta station wagons. We've got a TDI, you know, that we drive. So yeah, it's, you know, becoming an adult is hard. You get to, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Some of your coolness. <laughs> I don't think I was ever that cool to begin with, but for other people, I can understand how that was a big deal. Well, Amy June, it's been great talking with you. Uh, it's been great getting to know a little bit more about you, and I think you know, helping to open up to every you know everyone who listens to this kind of you know kind of open our minds to think more about the different things that you can do in relation to open source and other communities that aren't just opening a text editor and writing some code. So I really appreciate the sort of contribution you've had towards that, even just in this conversation of kind of like, you know, moving my mind on, on some of the things, you know, opening it kind of to, to the different ways we can do these things. So really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me because I love you folks at Lando and Tandem. I work at Canopy, but, um, you know, you, you folks are in my roots a little bit and like giving me that chance. And that's the thing too, is like for companies like out there, giving people chances is huge in career development and giving them mentors. Definitely. Huge for career development because you never know what's going to touch someone. So yeah, and we, we need a lot more of that. I'm definitely with you on that, on that one. Well, awesome. Thanks again, Amy June. And, uh, talk to you again soon. Okay. Thanks, Dustin. Thank you for listening to DevQuest. If you like the episode, 
do us a favor and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform, as it will help folks find us. You can find the show, including show notes and links to our work at devquest.lando.dev. Consider sponsoring Lando on Patreon at patreon.com slash devwithlando so we can continue to build the best open source developer tool belt in the galaxy and bring you more podcast episodes like this one. If you have a question or a story you'd love to tell, you can contact us at podcast at lando.dev. Until next time, dev well, friends. <laughs>